This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. This week's Shabbat message is by my dad, Warren Tanner. It is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, entitled Enter Satan. Feel free to check us out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. There you can find archived Shabbat messages. Uh, we put them all up there, and you can also find blog posts by my dad that he writes weekly. You can subscribe to those with your email in the little email subscribe box, and you can also find links to all our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud, YouTube, and uh, you can also uh, subscribe to our messages on your favorite podcast platform provider, such as Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, things like that. And our theme music, as usual, is by my buddy Evan Shaw. You can find him on Instagram, Evan Shaw Music, and his website, www.evanshawmusic.com. Enjoy. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Alrighty, so good to see you. Glad you're here. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3. If, if you have had a chance to read my blog, I mentioned that, um, you know, I've been, well, I worked my way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now it just takes me years to get there. And so I've finished almost all of Paul's epistles. I have Philemon to go, but I don't know, I've just been so long in Paul's writings, which, which is great. I just felt, I had a desire to go back to the beginning and, and to read the Pentateuch. So I want to read the first five books, kind of just get a break, kind of reset again back into the foundation, pretty much of which everything springs from. And um, so I'm in Genesis and I think I'm in chapter 22. I'm reading it a little quicker because I just kind of want to get the flow and the context. I find sometimes, especially with the bigger book, if I slow down and just read smaller portions, taking my time, by, I miss connections later on. So with the bigger books, I like to read more because I can make some connections uh, from what I've previously just read, and that's fun. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, so I talk about that in my blog, which is called An Evil Heart, or Evil Hearts, and the other read that. That's out of Genesis. And what I, I read, uh, what I wrote, and I'll say now, every time I read, starting at Genesis, I, I just, I'm surprised, not surprised, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm surprised at how quickly everything just unravels and falls apart and, you know, just deteriorates. <laughs> you know, I mean, almost from the get-go. And then you just, it just, it's a snowball. It just keeps building and getting worse and things are happening and it spreads. And like I said, you know, this evil heart is going to continue all the way to the end of, you know, when God's through with us, when this plan, I mean, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And so anyway, that's just, I shouldn't be blindsided by now, but I, I am every time I start reading 
I don't know if I want to believe. I want to believe better in the goodness of man, maybe. I don't know what it is. Then you find out, no. <laughs> There's none good, no, not one. There's no right, none righteous. Everybody, from the top of their head to the sole of their foot, like Isaiah says, full of wounds, bruises, and putrefying sores. You know. So on that oh, note, we're going to, uh, I've entitled this today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We'll read it. I've entitled it, Enter Satan. Enter Satan. So the way we're going to do this, I have like some introductory things I want to say. Then from this chapter, primarily, we're going to look at what I've listed out. It just came. I didn't plan for this. I, I didn't say, hey, I'm going to do a sermon from this. This was just my own reading, and I started jotting down stuff, and so this is what I came up with. We're going to look at some characteristics of Satan, and then we'll conclude. So introductionary remarks, some characteristics of Satan, then we're going to conclude. Um, so let's just read the chapter. And we'll, if I remember, when I get to the end of it, we'll pray and get into this. All right, so Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but... Of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman, oh, sorry, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her stupid husband, as stood by and didn't do anything while she did all this. That's what I should say. So she took of the fruit, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee? that thou wast naked. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, Yeah, I stood by and did nothing. I'm sorry my wife is a mess now because of me. No. So, and the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity 
between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Father, we thank you for your word. I appreciate the fact that it's just so honest and open and you don't hide anything from us. And... I appreciate the fact that it is as it is because that lets me know you know how I am and what my needs are and what my potentials are, my good potentials and my bad potentials. And so I just I appreciate, Father, the fact that right from the get-go, you get our attention, you make us think, you show us what we're capable of and that we have an adversary that's out to get us, but you're there to restore us when necessary, to protect us as we go along, and to somehow turn this disaster into something that will bring glory to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that's because of the salvation that we have in Him by faith when we accept Him. And I just ask that you bless this time now in your word, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, uh, the introductory remarks aside, these are what I'm calling asides. In chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It also uses this same phrasing, let us, in chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, if I got that right. Uh, the man has become as one of us. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. Who is this us is where I'm going with this. And then chapter 11 in verse 7, uh, and the Lord said, and then verse 7, go to, let us go down there and confound their language. This let us. And, and I don't know if I am just plain simple, but when I read things, I don't go looking for problems or issues. It's, it's usually not until I start looking into commentaries or some of my Bible studies, uh, study Bibles that I have. But this let us that we have here in chapter 1, verse 26, is actually a pretty lengthy discussion as to who the us is. 
Um, and it's a fascinating read. I'm not suggesting you do it, but the, the Jewish people and, and uh, the, the famous uh, rabbis and the teachings that they have, it's quite interesting on this, where they go with all this. To me, I think the simplest thing is, and, and it's, it's almost hard to say this now because in the Messianic movement, there's a debate on, is there such a thing as a trinity? I, I, I still hold to the trinity. Um, I know God is one, and I know it's God and one in three persons. I don't have a problem with that. Some in the Messianic movement do. But I, but I, I, I still think what we're seeing here is the multiplicity of our one God, let us, because he's the one that has the power to create. Let us make man in our image. So it's not, I don't think God and some angels. I don't think it's God in his heavenly court. Um, I don't think it's any other explanation of what I think you have is the triune God in, in concert with himself creating. And so, and, and I think it's borne out in, we have God brought out specifically one in verse 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. And then verse 2, on the heels of that, in, in the middle of the verse, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So it appears God himself is involved in the creation process. It appears the Holy Spirit's involved in the creation process. Who else is involved in the creation process? Well, go with me just quickly to John chapter 1. Very familiar to all of us, but John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was the in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So it tells us right there, verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in the creation process, it seems clear to me, the only ones that really have the ability to do any creating from nothing is God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Take it wherever you want with that, but I don't see that as, as much of an issue. Um, and, but it is. And, and these are one of the, the verses that the antagonists of, of the Bible and of the creation account point to, to bring up discrepancies or to try to cast doubt on, is this created by God or did it somehow have a life that was in it that God sort of energized? It goes on and on and on. I, I you know, I'm thankful to some degree I'm a simple-minded person, and to me this is the simplest way. Who can create? God. God alone can create. Holy Spirit looks like he's involved in verse 2, and we find out that Yeshua in John chapter 1, he was there, and without him was not anything made, it was made. So, that's one aside, that's one of my asides. Now, when you read Genesis, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When you read Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, it seems like it's one narrative. And then starting at 2-4, it's like, all right, now we, are we talking all this all over again? Why, didn't we just go through this? What's different? Why is it presented differently? I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but that was one of the things right away when I got saved. It's like, wait a minute, what the heck's going on here? You know, now one, through chapter 2, verse 3, it seems like one narrative, and now we have another narrative. Maybe you've never thought of it. Maybe you've never seen it that way. But for me, 
I think the simplest resolve I've had for myself, and I'm just going to share this with you, and I'm not going to talk about it, but in 1, 1 through 2, 3, basically what you have is the, the account of the creation of history. Just, uh, what did I just say? That's not what I meant. I said that wrong. You have the, the, the account, you, know, you have the history of creation. All right, that's the first part. 1, 1 through 2, 3 is the history of creation, the process of creation itself. Then when you go from chapter 2, verse 4 onward, then you have the history of mankind. So 1, 1 through 2, 3 is the history of creation. Then it has a little bit of a shift because now the focus is different and the focus now is on the history of mankind. So it, it repackages it, we'll just say a little bit, because now that is going to be the focus from 2-4 on to the rest of the Bible. It's the history of mankind. So he starts off, God, in his word, here's, here's the history of creation, this is how it happened. And now this is the history of mankind, how that happened and unfolds. So if you ever think about that... Um, that might be something that will work for you. I love this chapter 3, verse 8. Just two more and we'll, we'll get into the message. 3, 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Again, this is like one of those things that pop into my mind. But you've heard, if you've heard my kids, it's that when we lived in Milford, we basically 17 years there in, in that particular place and my office was downstairs and we had a stone flooring and to get to the boys room and I had these slippers that had that I don't know what was on the bottom but I never knew it till the kids told me later on that they could tell I was coming because you heard my slippers scraping on the floor and it's dad's coming dad's coming well that's what I'm thinking here that happened to Adam you know, it's like, that's coming. Ah, let's hide. Let's make believe everything's fine. You know, uh, let's see if he'll not come in or maybe he won't see us. You know, I just here you have Adam and Eve in this wonderful, intimate fellowship with God. They did something in the room that mom and dad told them not to do. And here comes the slippers across the floor and we're dead. Hide. How they must have felt. I can't imagine. To have open, unbroken, naked fellowship with God. To all of a sudden now have to go hide in the trees. And I find it interesting. You know, the contrast, I think I mentioned it later. If I don't, we'll do now. They abode in the light, right? Sin came, they went to darkness. And we're told in, in, in John, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Interesting. They lived out in the open, open fellowship with God, broken fellowship, sin, into the darkness. And men love darkness rather than light because they know they are disobedient to God, the creator that made them because he breathed into them the breath of life and their living soul was put in there by him. They, they don't want to acknowledge any of that. But all this plunging into darkness by man is we don't want anything to do with God. We're going to go our own way. Now, so the last one in this and then we'll move on. 
is Satan. What, what is interesting is he just pops out of nowhere. Poof. You know, in, in you read one and two, nothing's happening all of a sudden and blah, blah, blah. And chapter three, now the serpent was more subtle. It's like, wham, he just appears with no explanation. But a lot of people like to question whether or not there really is a Satan. I'm here to tell you there really is a Satan. If there really is a God, there really is a Satan. If the word of God is the word of God and he, it tells us that there's a Satan and, and Jesus himself had to fight against Satan right away, there is a Satan. There is a dark force. There's an adversary who's out to get us just like he was out to get Adam and Eve in the garden. He wants to thwart the plan of God, in this case, to ultimately ruin all hopes of the Messiah coming to save men from their sins. That's why we're told right away there's going to be enmity between her seed and your seed. So he appears with no explanation. And, and what's interesting is he questions the word of God. Yea, hath God said, and, and it's interesting that food is the issue here, or food is the avenue through which Satan is going to try to cause a weakness to happen, a momentary weakness and a fall. And so he questions the word of God. Food is the issue that is being used. And it's interesting, it happens with the first Adam. OK, then you don't have. Well, yeah, let's turn. I'm going to have go turn to Matthew four. Matthew four. So you have the first Adam. Satan comes to him through the avenue of the food to question the word of God. This is key. We have to get this. Then you get to Matthew chapter four. And it's that famous passage where after Yeshua has gone without food and so forth. Verse one, for one, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter uh, came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So right off the bat, the word of God now, the living word of God is being challenged and questioned by Satan himself to prove his own deity. And again, it's a food issue. And Yeshua is known as the second Adam. It's just to me, it cannot be any. Thing, it's, this is not a coincidence. Genesis, we have it right off the bat. Satan attacks the authority of the word of God and uses a human weakness to try to cause the fall of the first Adam. And he succeeds. The second Adam comes on the scene at a moment of weakness and hunger. That same old serpent comes and questions now the second Adam, who is the living word of God. He's questioning the living word of God face to face. And Satan, his, his, you could almost boil everything down. His strategy comes down to the fact that he does not want us to believe the word of God is the word of God. 
He doesn't want us to read the Word of God. He doesn't want us to absorb the Word of God. He would rather us question it, ignore it, not feel we need it, and thereby minimize its effectiveness in our lives through our own willing participation of neglect of it. And he succeeds once again in creating weak vessels. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we nourish our physical bodies really well. And we know what happens when we don't. Why we cannot believe that one we say we love, Yeshua himself, telling us, you cannot live by bread alone. If you want to sustain a healthy spiritual life as a redeemed child of God, you have to have this input. And if Satan was going to attack the first Adam and he attacks the second Adam, he's going to attack us who are being formed into the, into the image of our Savior by keeping us from this book. All right, so that's the beginning. Now, let's, I'll give you what my characteristics are. I don't know how much I want to get into any of them, but I'll give it to you, right? So the characteristics of Satan, and there's six of them. These are all mine. They started with S because I have to alliterate to just get my head in together. First, number one, he is serpent like. In other words, he's subtle. He slithers like a snake. So he's serpent-like. He's subtle. Number two, he slanders. Number three, he seduces. Number four, he separates. And there's four main areas. Number five, he brings sorrow. And as a consequence of it all, there's a sword that gets introduced. So serpent-like, slanders, seduces, separates, brings sorrow, and as a consequence, there's a sword. All right, now the first one. He's, he's subtle-like. Now the serpent was more... Uh, he, he, he's serpent-like, he's subtle. The, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. He's subtle. You know, we've all seen snakes. And probably, unless for that one particular person that loves snakes... You see a snake on the ground, even when you know it's not poisonous, or you don't think it's poisonous, it still kind of takes you back a little bit, right? Nobody likes it. We lived out in Arizona, had plenty of rattlers. You know, right out, there was one day right outside our patio, because we were on the ground floor there, and, and there was a wash. And boy, this rat, rattlesnake was not happy. And boy, it was like, <laughs> those rattles are like, it's like, all right, I don't think I'll go out there right now. And Judy's had more experience with rattlers than I did where she worked out, more out into the desert area. And uh, snakes, there's just something about them. And because and, they slither and they're so serpent-like and they move quickly and you don't know if they're going to get you or not. Interesting. The serpent, he feeds on death because it says the dust of the earth is where he's going to uh, reside. And, and the Lord said, verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, 
this isn't the original thought with me, but I thought it was pretty good, especially when living out in Arizona, when the haboob, haboob, what do you call it, big thing? The big, you've seen them, the dust storms that come. We lived through at least one of them. We didn't get the worst of it, but it was there. Well, what does it do? It, you can get, what, what's it called? Uh, valley fever? Valley fever, because it stirs up the dust. And when you, dumb me, I wasn't thinking about it. The next day, we had that one when we were living. I'm out there jogging away and all this stuff. And it's like, not till I get back after I do my three miles. Like, what the heck was I thinking? You know, people get valley fever, and this is a bad problem, and I'm out there. But anyway, so the dust particles, and part of what's bad with this is it, it stirs up the ground. And in the ground and in that dust, what's there? Death. Dead things are there, dead bugs, dead critters, dead animals, dead buzzards, dead, everything's dead. And so somewhere along the line, I was reading about the serpent being condemned to eat the dust of the ground. What the, I, that means, I don't know, but I liked what the guy said. Satan feeds on death. He feeds where death is. He wants death. That's what Satan wants. And if he can't get you dead physically, he'll get you dead spiritually because his whole goal is to bring death. If you are the son of God, here's that, uh, the pinnacle of the temple. You just, just fall and let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. The angels are supposed to, supposed to come to get you. He, he wants death. And he is out to kill us. And so if he can get people to live in darkness, then he's got him because that's where death resides. So he's, he's serpent-like. He's subtle. He, he wants to, through subtlety and subtle means, bring death and hopefully eternal death. He wants to take... Misery loves company. He wants to take as many with him as he can. And, and if he, since he can't kill, well, he could probably, I don't know if he could kill us now or not, but let's assume, since he, since he lost the battle in killing us before we got saved, his next best thing is to kill us spiritually. So we're just kind of like not producing on the vine. And we are basically anemic. So that's the first one. He's serpent-like. Second, he slanders, and he slanders God. And, and it's right away, yea, uh, and he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He slanders God. He slanders the validity of God. Who, who, does he really have the right to tell you what you can and cannot eat? And you know what? The, the truth is, is where subtlety comes in. He knows if you eat it, you're going to be just like him. That's why he doesn't want you to get that. But I'm here to tell you, all you have to do is this, and you're going to get what you need. I thought what was interesting, and I never really would have thought of this on my own, but my New Living Translation Bible had a good note on a 3-1. Um, they say, probably the serpent asked the woman, which is interesting, why did he go after the woman? Probably the serpent asked the woman, they say, because the prohibition was given to Adam prior to Eve's creation. Adam was probably aware of the serpent's cunning, having assessed 
and named the animals before the flood. And I thought that was just a little interesting perspective. Probably the serpent asked the woman because the prohibition to not eat was given to Adam prior uh, to Eve's creation. So, you know, he, he, he's, well, you know, I, I, don't, I, I can't tell you how this all played out, but he thinks through this thing and says, well, Adam, he was around, Eve was, oh, wait a minute, Eve wasn't around when God said not to do that. Maybe I can trip her up. I thought that was just interesting. And, but, and if that's the case, I love it when I come up with notes that intrigue me that aren't my thoughts. If that's the case, what you have is the, can I say it this way, the failure of the man to pass on important information that God gives, God gave to his mate. She should have known this, if I'm perceiving this correctly. And then if, if, if then he should have at least, oh, I'm going to say to I say, oh, crap, I forgot to tell her. I wasn't expecting this. Honey, don't eat that. Don't eat that. He didn't even do that. And he just fails in his role. So, but the, the, the main thing Satan wants to do is slander God. Are you sure God said that? Do you really think God has your best interest in heart? Do you think all those commandments, do you think you really have to keep all of them? And besides, you're in the New Testament now and Jesus has come. And, and that God back there, he's the bad, hard guy. Jesus came and he's the nice, wonderful guy. And look, you can eat whatever you want. Most of that Old Testament stuff's done away with. Don't worry about it. And though I don't tell you this, God does change, doesn't he? See, that's what I could never understand. He says he doesn't change, but then we're told he changes. And unknowingly, Christianity has played into this thing of questioning God. Yea, hath God really said we're supposed to keep all of the Ten Commandments? Nine minus one? Don't you see? This is his tool. And, and what he has done is robbed us of the blessing of living out the fullness of what God has for us to live out the best we can in the diaspora. There's not one of us that's come into this Messianic movement, though, a uh, Hebraic mindset that, of course, hasn't struggled and, you know, it's, it's kind of upset our own life a little bit, but aren't ultimately grateful that now this whole book is one living book. And now it's not, it's, now I don't know how you were, but I, I'd always read, say, yeah, I wonder if I'm supposed to do this one or not. Did you ever have that? I mean, reading through Deuteronomy and all this before coming to the Messianic mindset, I'm saying, well, this one, is this one applicable? Is this applicable? How do I do this? Am I supposed to do that? Do I not do it because Jesus said I don't have to? Well, wait a minute. God said not to eat all these buzzards, and now all of a sudden the sheep comes down, I can eat any buzzard I want? I don't, I don't get this. And so he uh, slanders. And then he seduces, verse 5. Ye shall be as gods. Isn't that interesting? Ye shall be as God. Some say ye shall be as God. I don't want to argue the merits of the text, but, you know, and for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and ye shall be as gods. Just take this. Look at all you're going to get. Every one of us sins. Sin ahead of time is really juicy. Sin afterwards really sucks. But it's the seduction of sin 
that draws us in. And that's what Satan knows. What was the seduction? Whoa, there's a whole other experience out there just waiting for you. All you have to do is do this one thing that God said not to do. And man, do you realize how good things will be afterwards? Those of you who sinned, who just were so glad you did afterwards, raise your hands. No, it doesn't work that way. So you'll be as, as gods. And besides, take a look at how great this is. Man, you are going to have... Verse 6, and a woman saw that the tree was good for food. She's not going to die. It's not poisonous. And that it was pleasant to, to the eyes. Well, look how pretty it is. And, and it was a tree desired to make one wise. I'm going to be smarter than I am. So she, she assesses everything based on the falsehood that he implants before her. She decides it's good. I'm not going to die. Look how pretty it is. And this guy over here said, man, you taste that forbidden fruit, eat it. Whoa. It's interesting. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 2.14. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Hmm. Deception. He seduces. The fourth one, he separates. And there's four of these. He separates man from the intimacy he had with his naked wife. That intimacy between husband and wife in the garden, that innocency that was there, was all of a sudden gone. They hide. They're naked. God has to make coverings for them. If they had known that that wonderful intimate relationship that they had would now be turned inside out and become ugly. <sighs> so he separates man from intimacy that he had with his wife. If only they had known what they'd be missing. And what's interesting is you have the first husband and wife bickering. He said, he, he did, he said, she said, no, he said, she said, he said, he said, she said. You know, it's, it's the first husband and wife argument. They're blaming one another. They're finding somebody to blame. They didn't have to do that not too long ago until they disobeyed. So finger pointing starts. It's so cool. Verse 12, um, 11. And he said, uh, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree where I commanded thee that thou should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Then he talks to the serpent and says, You're on their belly. But man, you're going to be cursed. Woman, you're going to be cursed. Man, you're going to be cursed. You're going to have to, that ground is now going to be cursed and you're going to curse it. And woman, I am so sorry. What could have been a wonderful experience is going to turn into something that is difficult. 
Um, I say it somewhere. Oh, yeah, I'll get to it in a little bit. All right. So so he separates man from the intimacy that he had with his wife. Second, he separates man from light. I mentioned this already. They now choose darkness. Verse eight, they hide themselves from the presence of God, who is light and sought the darkness amongst the trees. So he separates. This is what he tries to do. Man from his wife, wife from his man, man from light that now plunge him into darkness. Number three, he separates man from the garden. Verses 23 and 24. Uh, and Adam said, uh, no, I had the right notes. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. 320. Yeah, therefore the Lord God sent them forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed him outside. So now man is separated from the garden. I'm telling you, this is what's, how Satan works. It's, it's conquer, divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. And you can't miss this. You, please don't. I'll, I'll rehash it in a minute. So uh, second, uh, the next one is, uh, okay, so uh, separates man from the garden. Then he separates man from his children. Cain kills Abel, we find out. So this is just going from bad to worse. I mean, uh, I lost my notes here. Hold on, let me see if I can find where I am. I got myself all messed up here. Okay, so, yeah. Um, no, hold on a minute, please. I'm sorry. Oh, there it is. Got too many papers here. Anyway. He does, does all, these, all these things. I can't get it right now. So he separates man um, from his children. Cain kills Abel. Yeah, so that's point four. Man, he separates man from the intimacy of his wife. He separates man from light, plunges him in the dark, separates man from the garden. He separates man from his children. Those are the four things. Cain kills Abel. Can you see how fast everything's unraveling? This is what I can't get. Everything's peachy creamy until chapter three. By the time you get into chapter four, Kang's killing Abel. How did we get there? All right. He also brings sorrow. There's going to be sorrow in labor. This is primarily for the man. There's going to be sorrow in child rearing, uniquely so, I think, for the woman. So we're told, verses 17 through 19, man, in sorrow, you're going to have to work that ground. It's just going to be, it's going to be a headache. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I mentioned a million times working on a farm. It's, it's hard work to deal with this stupid ground. But then there's going to be sorrow for the woman. And this is, this is interesting because says unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Normally we think that this is referring to the birth process, where she's giving birth to the child, and, and the pregnancy, and the difficulty of it all, and the uncomfortableness of it all, and then finally you get to the great end of it all, and that's like the horrible worst experience ever, the pain and everything. And I'm not diminishing it, and I'm not saying that's not part of it. But I'd like to add another side to this. Could it be also sorrow in rearing the children? I think so. 
because you get into chapter 4, there's a sorrow that now gets introduced that's greater than when she bore the children. Now she has the sorrow of one of them just killed the other one. Ah, how do you deal with that? What? Golly, it's bad enough when our sins only affect ourselves. But don't be deceived. Our own sins don't just affect ourselves as much as I want to tell myself that and you want to tell yourself that. It doesn't. There's a spill out, an overflow. And if you don't believe it, look at your own kids. Because they, that, that sweet little torrent, that was my best little buddy. Now he's 13. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. You know, those are going to be interesting years. And that sweet little docile placid kid's all of a sudden going to have a will and a desire and, and a strength and blah. And I sit back and say, give it to him, Torn. Pay him back for me, will you? But there's a sorrow. It, it, it amazes me. I have all these kids on the bus. And I think about all of them. Some of them are really nice kids, but some. And I sit there and think, can, did the parent actually think when that little child was sweet and wonderful and innocent, they brought him home in my sanitized version of all this happening. It probably doesn't happen like that in the inner city quite so wonderfully. That now this child grows up. Oh, I got to be careful what I say. But one of the kids that I was, was getting out of my bus, I won't tell you what school, when, where, how, the mother's standing in the picture window and he's walking across the street getting on the bus giving his mother the finger. I asked him when he got on the bus, were you giving your mother the finger? Oh yeah, I thought I was. I said, why? Oh, because. <laughs> Sorrow. We self-perpetuate it, but it's still there. Sorrow. You know, Monday comes. There's a few people, but can't, can't you just wait for Monday morning to come? I mean, can't you just wait? Woohoo! We got to go to work Monday. All right! Great! Can't wait. I mean, in rare cases, there's people like that. But do you understand what I'm saying? He probably would have woken up in the garden every morning and said, hey, man, I'm going to go out and work the ground and you know, do whatever. And there, somehow it could have been joyful. Now it's a little different. Sorrow. And now rearing children. Death. Satan, who feeds on death, didn't take him very long to bring spiritual death to Adam and Eve and physical death, Cain, Kill, and Abel. He's succeeding pretty soon and quickly and easily, isn't he? So sorrow. And then the last one, he brings a sword. 24, he drove out the man, placed him in the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way the tree of life. What? There's a sword, an implement that will bring death? Guarding, which... That which God meant to be this idyllic place for them to live and thrive and grow and bring forth children and have happy families and the ground would be fertile. 
Now a sword? Wow. I, I don't even know why we as Christians have a hard time giving Satan his rightful due. He's, he's thriving, he's alive and well, and he's out to get us. And, and one of the things I've noticed in reading the writings of Paul is, there's a big topic with him, Satan, and the depravity of man and sin bringing death. Over and over and over, Paul deals with this. And I mean, he, he's got a couple chapters where he just said, hey, you're not fighting this flesh and blood, there's this spiritual host. And it kind of just goes whoosh, 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 over our heads. And because Satan's doing that stuff in Africa and in the third world countries. And look at all the demon possession in Haiti. America, not here. The land of the free, home of the brave, God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and all this stuff. Not in America. Well, listen, Satan is subtle, right? He has strategies. He's not going to come around with the pitchfork. Breathing fire. Whoa. We're too smart for that. So he dresses up in a suit. Actually, he even stands behind some pulpits. He's very nice. He's cultured. Never thought of it that way till we went to a men's retreat when I was pastoring early on in the ministry. And, and, the, and the, the, the fellow that they flew in to preach was actually in my school and, and somewhat knew him. But gosh, he was an intelligent, smart, spiritual guy. Talked about how Satan is out He's waging a war against the soul. Boy, he hammered that whole week on Satan's tactics and what kind of adversary he is, and he's waging a war against our soul. I, I can still remember him saying that and how it hit me. Wow. This, this is penetrating. This is deep. This is reaching into the very core of man. Because God breathed into man the breath of life. Uh, 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 the breath of life of man became a living soul. So Satan wages a battle against that part of us where, I don't know, that God something is. That thumb imprint in our DNA that says, I, there is a God and he made you and you know that. And Satan comes along and wages a war against that. All right, let me finish with some concluding thoughts and we can be done. Number one, Satan is a real, uh, sorry, Satan is real and around until the end. We won't look at it, but even in Revelation 12, 9, it talks about how Satan is still alive and well. He was at the beginning in the garden. He's at the end of it all. Second, this is, this is just me. Interestingly, in our times, there's an attempt to neuter God, to neuter God, even the attempt to make him female. You know, we're aware of this. You know, they're, they're making the newer Bibles where God's not a he anymore. They, they, they neuter God in, the, in the newer trans, some of the newer translations where he's not a he. It's kind of we, he's an unidentified entity. It could be one or the other. What's, what's, and this just hit me because we're talking about Satan. So, you know, the feminists, they want God to be female. I've not heard of one say, and be mad about the fact 
that Satan's regarded as a man. I've not heard one bit of an outcry to make Satan a woman. There's nobody out there wanting to make Satan a woman. None. The hypocrisy of all this is, is bizarre. Yeah, just think about this. I, I don't know why I thought about this, but, you know, just based on the society and the times and, and the Bibles that are coming out and what they're doing to God and just kind of making him just neuter. Nobody wants, I don't see any feminist saying, you know, saying, I am mad that Satan's not a woman. Let's make Satan a woman. I've, I've not heard that. Maybe you have. That's just a stupid thought. But Third thing. Don't ever engage Satan. Flee from him. I don't know how you grew up, but there's some, some branches of Christianity that just say, you know, talk to Satan. Tell him to be gone. Talk to Satan and tell him that you're going to resist him. I, I don't recommend talking to Satan. I mean, there was a period of time in which I was doing that, and it seemed like I was talking more to Satan than I was talking to God. I don't recommend that. Do with it what you want. I just think it's a dumb move. Um, you're no match for Satan. You can tell him, be gone, Satan, and unless the Holy Spirit does it, your resistance isn't going to do it. You know, we're told to flee. Flee from Satan. Resist him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we're to resist him. That's my counsel. I just, I don't, think, I don't think it's wise to take them on, head on. If you want to, go for it. Fourth concluding thought. Doubting God's word is of satanic origin. I just, I'm just going to say that. Doubting God's word in any form or fashion, that's satanic. It's just satanic. And any time you start to sense, gee, does it really mean this? Did God say this? Is this what it means? Ho, ho. And you feel, that's of Satan. I'm just telling you, so Satan. And Satan is having a field day because there's a gazillion translations out there. And I, I guess pe most people don't think like I do. But I think through it all, they always say, no, there's no difference. Well, that's a lie. There's a lot of differences. You know, we had a whole set of manuscripts from the 1100s up to 1611 that followed one set. And then you get to the late 1800s and now everything turns on its head and there's this whole family, other set of manuscripts, which are the best, the oldest, and the brightest, and you need to use those. And now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And look at all this stuff we're finding. Ooh, this is good. This was long back then, and, and we're going to correct it now. But we had from the 1100s to 1611, 1769, actually, when the, the last revision came out of this. That's a long time where they were all in agreement. But Satan came along, and I saw this firsthand at my college when the New American Standard became popular on our campus. The faith of folks started to unravel, especially those that thought, because they're side by side with the Bibles, the two different... Wait, it's not there. Where is... It used to be right there. Wait, they're saying, oh, it's not supposed to be there. And wait a minute, there's something new in here. That's not here. It's not been here before. But now they're saying it should be in here now. Well, which is right. Well, they're all the same. There's no difference. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. And whether you know it or not, we are reaping the negatives of that because inside of us, prior to this happening, there's something in us now that wasn't. A little bit of a question and a doubt. And if you're at all serious in reading your Bible, it's happened to you. And I'm telling you, 
Flee from that. It's satanic in origin. Figure out what it is yourself. Listen, I've had to do this because being in the ministry and responsible for knowing this sort of stuff. And I've I picked different translations. The New American Standard has had how many editions put out? And they're all different. I've studied this. New American came out and it wasn't in. Next one, next edition, it's back in. Later on in another edition, that phrase or word is back out again. How many editions has that had? The New King James Version. How many editions has that come out? And there's changes and there are additions and takes away. Oh, the, the English Standard Version, that's now the biggest and the best and is way above the New American Standard. It's had how many editions of that and changes? It's confusing. So doubting God's word is of satanic origin. And then the last one. Man's failure to lead and protect his wife started the breakdown of the family and thus society. If you don't get anything out of this. Men have to lead the family. The poor wife has to come along for the ride. And the wife, who is usually smarter than the guy, has to stand back and watch that idiot do one stupid thing after another. But we don't, that's how we learn. And so the wife helps. She nurtures. She subtly, in the right sense, guides him. And if the man has any sense, he'll talk to the mate and say, well, what do I do? Help me here. But ultimately, the man is responsible to lead the family. He's responsible for the welfare of, this, of, of the wife. And we all fail at this. But man's failure to lead and protect his wife in Genesis started the breakdown of the family. Cain slew Abel. And it's not much longer before God's wiping out the whole world. <laughs> this is a big deal. The stuff I'm telling you today, it's not, it doesn't make you feel good. Actually, it makes me feel good because I like to know the truth, the hard truth, whatever the truth is. And I don't, I don't get down by it. I say, thank you, God. You know, I need to know this stuff. And so when I put something together like this, it's for my own self. It just happens. And I sit back and I say, boy, am I glad I just saw this, that, and the other thing. Whoa, this is good. I better beware. Thank you, God. And it makes me examine myself, look at myself, see my failures, see how I'm not leading, see how I'm letting sin into my life. What am I doing about it? Not doing about it. That's reality. And if we want to really enjoy the peace of God, which passes all understanding, we have to be in line with God's word. That's where the joy comes from. Not the momentary we get together, woo-hoo, flip and flop and have a wonderful time. As wonderful and as good as it is, but I've learned from personal experience, because we went to a church like that when we were in college and shortly afterwards. I mean, they weren't charismatic, but boy, they were the closest thing next to it, running up and down the aisles, waving hankies, praising God. I mean, just it was like a zoo. I loved it, quite frankly. And that's a great, that's a wonderful experience. But unless there's some meat put on that experience, you go out into the world, that euphoria kind of just fades like pixie dust and unless you have some substance been put into you to go out and do battle 
It's going to be more than just happy emotions that sees you through. And I've lived down south long enough to know the ruined families, the divorces, the ruined children, same people that were hooping and hollering. Now, I've seen them growing up in good fundamental churches, and they'll break down in the family, in the divorces. I'm telling you, there has to be substance. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if man fails in the garden of his home, we're in trouble. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. It's funny, I never know how these things are going to go and what the tone's going to be. I enter into these things being all excited and happy, and, and I listen to myself. It's like, wow, that was horrible. That was hard. That was like, no, I don't feel too good about that. So I don't know what to make of any of this, God. Um, thankfully, Luke's next week, and it'll be a little bit better. What I pray, Father, you'd help us to just take heed, I guess. Take heed. I, I just have to imagine that most of the uh, letters that Paul wrote to these people, you know, Come on, Paul, you got anything good to say? I mean, he just saw reality and said, listen, if we're going to survive, we need to know these things and these things need to be addressed. And come on, we have a battle. We're in a warfare. And, and Father, just the fact that he, he writes his last letter to Timothy, talking about fighting a fight. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Timothy, fight. I, we're having a hard time with this fight thing. You know, we, we want it to just be vacation time. But I think we're losing some ground. I think we're losing ground in our own personal lives and our family lives and our, the lives of our congregations, the lives of our cities and society and country and the world. So anyway, pull it together, make application, do with this as you see fit in Yeshua's name. Amen. Mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does not me away. The soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and your oh.